Attention. Attention. Welcome to the Million Dollar Filipino Freelancer Podcast, where we break the myth that Pinoy contractors mean cheap rates. Just like when we realize that aswangs, pundins, and kinakasan na tikbalang are all just fiction. There will be a select type of Filipino freelancers who will one day represent world-class results for our clients. Hosted by Neil Reichel, a Pinoy freelancer, agency owner, and entrepreneur who has seen it again and again that charging what you're worth is not about your race or heritage. It's all about the value you deliver and finding out what our clients really need. This is not for you if pabebe ka, nana feeling small, and pa-victim ka. If you want to know the working strategies on how not to be purita and position yourself during conversations where you don't need to explain what you charge, then we invite you to subscribe and watch out for our weekly episodes. Follow Neil Reichel on Facebook and Instagram. Always remember, being purita is a choice, but only if you don't make business sense. Oh, let's start. Let's go. Welcome to the Million Dollar Filipino Freelancer Podcast. This is Neil Reichel. And in today's episode, we have probably one of the most special guests. Not because he's like six foot three and I'm five foot six and three fourths. Not because he's one of the most famous mentors of the guy that we all know of, Mr. Ryan Levesque. Not only is it because that what he's going to be talking about is something that he has been through. So this time, we're not going to talk about marketing in general, but we're going to talk about the overall most important thing, which is our health and how it does affect us as performers, especially in the world of marketing, especially that we're serving clients and how we would always like to give our top most. Our guest for tonight is no other than one of the best psychologists. If you open up his brain right now, you'd see the DNA is all about <laughs> psychologists. Okay, He grew up in a family of people who are experts in this field. Our guest for tonight is the one and only, the author of Defeat Your Cravings. He also has a book with over 20,000 reviews, millions of readers, Okay, Psychology Today, the one and only, Dr. Glenn Livingston. What an introduction. I'm going to have to have you follow me around and introduce you at parties and stuff. I think I would do a little better. You know what I'm saying? So I'm supposed to say hi, bashers, right? Hi, bashers. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> Thank you. Dr. Glenn, right off the bat, I'm five foot six. You're six foot three. My waistline is 38-ish, 37-ish. I weigh 170. I don't know how much you weigh. Do you weigh 172? What's your weight? No. <laughs> I'm, I'm six four. I'm about 14.5% body fat. I go more by body fat than the weight these days. My weight's like 222, but I'm 6'4". 222. But you carry your weight well versus me, okay? I look like a plump ear walking around, right? I wouldn't know that from looking at you, by the way. I wouldn't have said that from looking at you. Okay. And I love Zoom because it gives you the perfect look from the neck up, right? So my first question to you is this. How has obesity, how has cravings affected us lately in terms of our health, especially the way we perform with our brains? 
the way that we form with our business. Is that what you said? With our business, since we're working, especially with the mind, like majority of the time. I think I was watching an old direct response seminar a long time ago, and I think it was Ted Williams that kind of interrupted this whole discussion about, well, now you could make so many millions of dollars if you did this follow-up mailing and you should put the stamp over here. And, and he interrupted the discussion and he said, guys, I just want you to know if you make $10 million and you dropped out of a heart attack, you lost the game. Like everybody was so obsessed with the finances and it's really true. Like if you're facing some major health problems, which most people will in the context of all of the hyper palatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and oil and cytotoxins that are being manufactured today and all these bags and boxes and containers, most people will face some serious health crises later in their life if they continue to do what everybody else is doing. It really hit me hard, like probably began my serious recovery from overeating just around the time I was discovering direct response. And I was very excited about direct response and all the money that you could make and how reliable it could be. But in the meantime, I'd gotten myself up to almost 300 pounds and my triglycerides were over a thousand. And maybe not by the time you knew me in 2006 was around you knew me, but five, six years before that. How young were you then? 38, 39 was my worst 38, 39 years old was my worst. I think I came on the direct response scene really 2006 was when I spoke at Perry Marshall Seminar and I was 42 then, I guess. I'm 59 now. I, I still have some hair and teeth, but I could gum you, you know what I mean? <laughs> I don't see any 59 in this conversation right now. What I see is like strong 32. I'd like to say I feel like I'm still in my early 40s, but yeah, I work hard. So it just really hit me that I, I was chasing the wrong thing. I think money is very important. It's part of what we need to do in life. But I I really hadn't prioritized my health enough. And there were some people around me that were suffering from health problems. And my uncle had a really serious heart attack. And my numbers were bad. My blood numbers were bad. And my scale numbers were bad. And I had to do something about it. I had spent a lifetime. It had been a problem most of my life. Like I was never as big as I was then. But most of my life, I like to say I, I lost the war with a chocolate bar in 1982, and I never really looked back. <laughs> Mostly chocolate and pizza. It interfered with my life at first, not really so much from a weight perspective, but from a food obsession perspective, because I couldn't really be present with my early patients. I'd be thinking, when can I get to the deli and dislodge my jaw and have a whole pizza? And I was always thinking about the next meal all the time, all the time, all the time. I tried to solve it by loving myself then. I thought I'm a psychologist and I come from this family of psychologists and it must be that there's a hole in my heart. If I could fix that hole in my heart that I could stop trying to fix that hole in my stomach. You know, and I went to psychotherapists and I went to Overeaters Anonymous and I took medication and I did all the things that you would do to try to nurture your inner wounded child back to health. It was a spiritual journey. It was a rich journey. It was a soul enhancing journey. But it was also a pretty fattening journey. I would get a little thinner and a lot fatter and a little thinner and a lot fatter. And there were three things that changed that paradigm for me and led to the development of the current method. One was that, as your audience probably knows, I was doing a lot of marketing research and advertising research consulting for Fortune 500 companies, particularly in the food industry. And I saw that they were engineering those concoctions, the salt and sugar and fat, and it was all geared 
towards hitting the bliss point in the reptilian brain without giving you enough nutrition to be satisfied. There were hundreds of millions of dollars going into that, and there were really smart people working on it, like smarter than you and I. I said to myself, well, this has nothing to do with the fact that my mama dropped me on my head or her mama dropped her on her head. And like, it's not an internal psychological conflict. It didn't really have to do with my past. It's a very external market force. They were putting chemicals into the packages that would turn off your ability to know when you were full. They were taking the vitamins out, out of the food-like substances, and they were putting it into making multicolored, vibrant packaging instead, which stimulates your variety response. There's this evolutionary button that says, if it tastes different, you should probably eat it because it might have a variety of micronutrients that you need. If it looks different, like when you go to eat the rainbow, if you have a salad and you put green lettuce and blueberries and red tomatoes and yellow carrots or orange carrots, you're getting a variety of micronutrients. But in this case, the industry was taking the vitamins out and putting it into the packaging instead. And then I did this study with 40,000 people trying to figure out the psychology of overeating. And I saw that there were some relationships, like people that struggle with chocolate, like me, they tended to be a little more lonely or brokenhearted or depressed. Whereas people who struggled with chewy, crunchy things like chips and pretzels, they tended to be stressed at work. And people that struggle with pizza or bagels, they tended to be stressed at home. And I thought, well, maybe I'm really onto something. And I asked my mom, and this is all kind of leading to a change in paradigm. I asked my mom, because she was a therapist and she raised me, and I said, why do I go to chocolate when I'm feeling unhappy? Why do I go to chocolate? And she got this horrible look on her face and she said, well, Glenn, honey, you know, when you were one year old in 1965, your grandfather, my father, had just gotten out of prison. And I had no idea he was guilty. He had disappeared for a couple of years. I was horribly depressed. And I just sat around staring at the wall half the time. On top of that, your dad, my husband, he was a captain in the army and they were talking about sending him to Vietnam. And I was trying to get pregnant. So I thought I'm going to have two little kids and I'm going to be, you know, an army widow. So the, the gist of it was that instead of being there to love me and play with me and, you know, hug me when I came to her, she would take a big bottle of chocolate Bosco syrup and she kept it in a bottle and a little refrigerator on the floor. And she said, go get your Bosco. She kind of taught me to go to chocolate. At one year old. At one year old, yeah. And so you would think that that would be the ultimate psychological insight. Like if that was a movie, I would say, oh my God, now I'm cured. You know, I have a big hug and a big cry. I got to know my, my, my mom better. It was a nice discussion. I learned more about her. I could be more forgiving to myself. My chocolate eating got worse. The reason for that is that I discovered there was this little voice in my head. It was a voice of justification. And it was something like this, you know, Glenn, your mama didn't love you enough and she left you a great big chocolate-sized hole in your heart. And until you can fix the marriage or find the love of your life, you're going to have to go right on eating chocolate. Yippee, let's go get some right now. I saw that there was this crazy voice of justification in my head. And I said, wait a minute, I can take control of that. I shouldn't be this all poor baby attitude when I hear that I should be more like an alpha wolf and say, get back in your cage. Like when an alpha wolf is challenged for leadership, it doesn't go, oh my goodness, someone needs a hug. It growls and it snarls and it says, you know, get back in line or I'll kill you. So I did this really crazy thing. And this, is, this had nothing to do with anything I was going to teach. I was, this was just a personal recovery effort. And if anybody told me that I was going to have millions of readers talking about this later on, I would be shocked. And it's kind of embarrassing in some ways because, you know, I'm a sophisticated psychologist with all types of media appearances and credentials and stuff. What I did was 
I decided to draw really clear lines in the sand. I will never have chocolate on a weekday again. I'll never have chocolate on a weekday again. And then if I was in Starbucks and I heard a little voice in my head that said, go ahead, Glenn, you worked out hard enough this morning, even though it's a Wednesday, you're not going to gain any weight. A few bites won't hurt. If that would happen, I would say, wait a minute, that's not me. That's my inner pig squealing for pig slop. Chocolate on a weekday is pig slop. I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. It was crazy. It was a really ridiculous thing. It didn't miraculously cure me, but what it did was it interfered with the automaticity of that habit loop. It like opened up a space between stimulus and response where I could do things to make better choices. Sometimes I would, and sometimes I wouldn't. I could breathe. I could take what they call a 7-Eleven breath. I could breathe in for shorter than I breathed out. That helps you get back into your rational mind because you wouldn't have time to do that if you're being chased by a hungry bear. I could try to disempower what the pig was saying. So if it said, just start your silly rules again tomorrow, it'll be just as easy. I could say, well, the principle of neuroplasticity says otherwise. If you have a craving for chocolate and the thought you could just start tomorrow, it'll be just as easy. And then you eat the chocolate, you're reinforcing both the craving and that thought. So tomorrow the craving is going to be stronger, as will the thought. You can only ever use the present moment to be healthy. And if you're in a hole, you better stop digging. I would call that a rational refutation. And I spent a number of years journaling all the crazy things my pig would say and how I could refute it. It would tell me one bite won't hurt, and I knew it was never going to just be a bite. It would tell me that my parents were fat, so I'm doomed to a life of obesity. And I would say, well, I looked up the research on this, and it's a little less than half the variance that's accounted for by genetics. Diet and lifestyle are actually a little bit more important. What's true is that I have a bigger mountain to climb than other people. Some people are naturally thin and can eat M&Ms all day long and never gain a pound. That's just not me. Just like I'm never going to be a ballet dancer or a basketball star. I just don't have the genetics for it. And I would refute those things. And over time, I got better. That's largely how I got better. There were other pieces and parts that I would characterize as learning how to self-regulate, like get more authentic nutrition. When I started having more kale banana smoothies, I had less cravings for chocolate in the first place. Getting enough sleep, making enough friends, having enough social contact taking care of my hydration, minimizing my decision-making throughout the day if I could, because it turns out that willpower is the ability to make good decisions, and you can only make so many in a given day before you have to recharge that. And so I always tell people, if you struggle with overeating at night, have a solid breakfast and make your food plans for the evening and the morning. Put the food out in Tupperware so it's waiting for you. Don't try to make decisions at night when you get home. There was a wide variety of other, there were a wide variety of other things that kind of supported this cognitive intervention. But I kept a journal for eight years. When I got divorced, I wrote a book, got really popular. And now people don't really know me by name like they do in the marketing circles. When, when I go into a bookstore, sometimes people point at me and go, pig guy, you're the pig guy, which is just beautiful. <laughs> it's just what I wanted. From what I understand right now, Dr. Glenn, is this battling cravings with what you went through, eight years of it, it wasn't an easy journey. It was a tough one. You having to go through it and then you going through psychotherapy or is that correct? Like counseling and you even had meds. What specific meds did you have back then if you still remember? I took medication for my anxiety for a little while and I took medication for depression for a little while. 
would you still remember what those meds are like the acetalopram's would those be it it was Cirax. I think it was called Cirax back then. It's about 20 years ago. So it was only for a little while. And then Zoloft. But I didn't stay in the medication that long. It didn't really make a difference. Which I think is really important that you didn't have to take the medications for so long and that you got to finally win the battle on your own through finally figure out all those things. However, for mere mortals like us, battling cravings is like something that would be unheard of. It's a constant battle and having to use your will. Would I reach in for that next bag of chips? Would I have to, or which bag of chips am I going to reach out for? Am I going to have a Coke tonight? So the question is, would it be the same principles like building new habits in order for me to stop my cravings? Or is it a different thing altogether? No, it is. You do need to build new habits, but you also need to eradicate a lot of the mythology that's coming at us in the culture about how to manage your eating. For example, there's a general fear of food rules because of the fear that they engender perfectionism and because of the valid observation that when people misuse perfectionism after a mistake, essentially to say, if I'm not perfect, I'm nothing. Therefore, I might as well just eat everything in sight because it's pathetic, it's hopeless, I'm a loser. I'm just always going to be fat. That's the way that people talk to themselves after they make a mistake. And that's the misapplication of perfectionism. But there's another dimension to perfectionism that most people don't understand. Most people say, well, I'm going to strive for progress and not perfection. That's an appropriate attitude that winners take after they make a mistake when they're analyzing the results and trying to readjust their aim. So let's think about an Olympic archer. If an Olympic archer misses the bullseye, he doesn't go, God damn it, I'm a pathetic archer. I might as well just shoot the rest of the arrows up into the air. He assesses by how much and in what direction he missed. Ideally, it's still somewhere on the target, but even if it's not, by how much and in what direction. And then he analyzes, well, what did I do wrong? How can I improve for next time? He also might say, what did I do right in order to hold on to that? So he does the thorough analysis a realistic analysis. He turns his guilt into responsibility by making actual changes in his life. And then he gets up, and this is the key part, then he aims at the target with perfection. See, winners commit with perfection and forgive themselves with dignity. But before the Olympic archer lets go of the arrow, he's got to see the arrow going into the bullseye. He's got to feel it in his soul. That's the psychology of goal pursuit for winners. It's not progress, not perfection especially when it comes to cravings and habits, because that just means I'm going to try for a little while until I don't feel like it anymore. You say, I'm, I'm, I'm eating too many potato chips. I'm just going to do the best I can. That means you're going to have more potato chips later on, more than you wanted to. If you say, I'm only going to have one bag every other day, and I'm going to do that with perfection. That's my bullseye. That's what I'm aiming for. You want to purge your mind of doubt and insecurity about that goal by committing with perfection because otherwise that doubt and insecurity is going to drain the energy that you need to aim at that goal. But then if you miss, you need to say, well, what did I do right? Like, how close did I get? Three bags is better than 10 bags. How did I stop after three? What did I do right? I might have eaten the whole bag, but I didn't eat the bag itself. What did I do right? And how do I make adjustments? Commit with perfection and forgive yourself with dignity. So there's this third dimension of perfectionism, or the second dimension of perfectionism, which is when are you applying it? When you're aiming or when you're assessing the results? Most people have inner pigs or 
inner food demons or whatever you want to call it, will do it just the opposite. They will say, when you're aiming, you should aim kind of half-heartedly and just try your best. But then if you miss, you should say, well, you're pathetic, you're worthless, you might as well shoot all the hours. You want to flip that. You want to aim with perfection, but then forgive yourself with dignity. So that's part of it. The other part is that people don't really understand the science of cravings and how they work. First of all, cravings are not a sign of sickness. In 99% of the cases, there are some brain lesions and certain diseases where you could theoretically have you know, something wrong with your ventromedial hypothalamus or something like that. But in 99% of the cases, that's just not true. Cravings are a sign of a healthy mind doing its job. It means you've got a healthy, strong anatomy doing its job. Let me take you back 100,000 years ago. 100,000 years ago, suppose there's this caveman named Thag, T-H-A-G, Thag. And Thag figured out that if he follows a monkey, a certain kind of monkey, to a tree, that's likely that that tree is going to have bananas. He gets cravings when he sees monkeys, and he gets really motivated to follow monkeys to trees. He also, by the way, will eat as many bananas as he can, because in a scarce food environment, he doesn't know when the next banana tree is going to show up. The ability of the brain to induce cravings, which are just motivation to go follow the monkey, in response to a food signal, the monkey is a food signal, that's healthy. That's a survival advantage. The people who had stronger cravings were the ones that were more likely to survive. Cravings are only harmful in the modern food environment. The second thing is that you really do need a hard and fast rule so that you know when you're about to break it. When you're saying, just do the best I can, I'm just going to aim for this squishy target. First of all, like my grandfather said, if you don't know where you're going, you're going to wind up someplace else. Or if you don't know where you're aiming, you're probably going to hit something else. Or maybe it was Yogi Berra. I don't know. Maybe he got it from him. But you really do need a very clear line because once you have a clear line, like I'll never have chocolate on a weekday again, then you know that any thought whatsoever, any thought, image, feeling, suggestion in my head that says, I'm going to eat chocolate on a weekday, that's not me. That's my pig. See, that provides a mechanism to wake up at the moment of impulse. That's how you intervene in the automatic loop. The brain also, as a matter of health, wants to act as a calorie acquisition machine. And it wants to automate those habits so you expend the least amount of physical and mental effort in acquiring the calories. Most people will say, well, I just kind of woke up with a bagel in my mouth. I don't know how I got there. It's just automatic. I forgot about my rule effort. You have to make an active effort to intervene with that because otherwise your brain is going to automate it and it's going to want to repeat it indefinitely. So it doesn't feel natural. One thing you can do to build that ability is to pause for three seconds every time before you eat anything. Just go one, two, three. It's going to feel annoying. It's going to feel unnatural because your brain wants to automate everything. But that's the point. We live in an unnatural environment. You're going to have to do something unnatural to make that intervention. And then people are also told that, okay, let me finish the science of cravings. So the other thing about the science of cravings is they are linked to particular food stimuli. So let's say that I want to stop eating so much pizza and I'm driving by this pizza place on the way home every day from work, five days a week, and I'm getting like four or five slices of pizza and it's starting to show on my stomach. I want to stop. So I make a rule for myself that says I will never have pizza on a weekday. Maybe I just say I won't have pizza at all for a while. I go through what's called an extinction curve. There's some pain involved with that. I'll, I want to go through that in a minute also. But then after a month, 
I'm no longer really craving pizza as I pass the pizza place. The first couple of times I pass it, my brain goes wild and says, you better go back in there. I'm going to make you miserable. You're going to be tortured forever. You can't do this. But I tough it out and I get through the month. And I think that I'm free. But then I wind up going to my dad's place. And I used to have pizza with my dad while we played poker once a month. And I go to my dad's place and, oh my God, I've got the worst cravings for pizza and I give it and I have it. Well, if I don't understand the science of cravings, which is that a craving is attached to a particular set of food stimuli, it's usually not a unitary habit, it's attached to multiple stimuli, then I would have thought that I failed and that giving up pizza would be inevitable. But if I understand that my father's place and the poker game is a different food stimuli than the pizza place, then I say I didn't fail, I succeeded in extinguishing the pizza place as a craving signal. I failed at extinguishing my father's place and I need to make a set of rules for what I'm going to do at my dad's place. The other thing people don't understand is that the extinction curve, when you stop going inside the pizza place to get pizza every time, beginning to extinguish the validity of the pizza place as a calorie acquisition signal, that extinction curve is not a straight line. It's not like the first day you have this many cravings and then it goes down like this. You would think it would be. What actually happens is there's a little bit of a honeymoon and then there's what we call an extinction burst where you're going to feel worse cravings than you ever had before. And then if you get through that, then it goes down until you get to like exposure number 20 to 30 and there's a couple of little bumps and then your brain labels the signal, that particular signal, it labels it as dormant. It doesn't forget the learning. You can reactivate it really quickly because it would not be an evolutionary advantage to forget the learning. However, it will label it dormant because it is an evolutionary advantage to not waste energy on things that you're not going to have if it's not going to require calories. So, so let's talk about that extinction burst. I call it where the F is my pizza burst. It's like your brain is having a little temper tantrum. I used to get pizza every time we passed this place. Where the F is my pizza? First of all, the mistake people made it, make at that point in the curve is they think this is going to last forever. This is too torturous. I can't get through it. And so they give in. Secondly, I'd like you to understand the reason for that burst. Let's go back to our friend Thag, the caveman again. Suppose that Thag follows a monkey to a tree the next day and it leads to bananas and the next day it leads to bananas and the next day it leads to bananas. And then suddenly it doesn't lead to bananas. Would it be advantageous for Thag to just give up at that point and stop following monkeys? I don't think so. Because it wouldn't be advantageous for him to stop following monkeys because maybe the bananas are starting to become a little more scarce, but the monkey is still a valuable signal. He's more likely to find bananas with monkeys than without them, right? Yes. So that's a stimuli, yeah. So what would actually happen is Thag's brain would secrete more dopamine and make him, or else lower the dopamine to make him more miserable and motivated to go find bananas. And he would double down. That He would get twice the stronger craving because the brain is testing to see has that food become intermittently available, intermittently and randomly available. When a food reward becomes intermittently and randomly available, and there's no way to predict when it will be available, the brain works harder than ever. This is like the old ladies you see stuck at the slot machines in Las Vegas. Now, imagine that slot machine only paid off on Saturday mornings at 10 o'clock. They would not be sitting there all week long, but they don't know when it's going to pay off. So they're just sitting there and pulling and sitting there and pulling and sitting there and pulling. When you randomly indulge the craving, if I just give in at random to the pizza place as I'm passing it, 
I'm actually making the craving stronger than it was before I started because I'm telling my brain that I'm living in a field of scarce banana trees. I have to work even harder to find the bananas. So that's the worst thing you can do. If you don't want to give something up, and two out of three people that I work with on two, two out of three cravings, they don't want to give it up. They would say, well, what if I only have pizza on Saturday afternoon after my workout? I say, that's perfectly fine. Just really stick to it. Because what will happen is your brain will incorporate those two additional signals, Saturday mornings and the workout, into the availability of pizza when you pass the pizza place. And it will it'll look at it as a kind of complex signal, and it will only start firing the cravings when those three things are in synchrony, and it won't follow it all the time when you're at home. It takes a good month or so to, to do that. So we call that eating by design or contextualizing your cravings. Like if you really want to get a hold of, I don't tell anybody what to eat or not to eat, but if you are addicted by some concoction that industry has made and you really would like to keep it in your life in some way, figure out under what conditions it's okay to have it, contextualize it as much as you can, and then make a very hard and fast rule. I'll only have pretzels at major league baseball games, or I'll never eat bread again except for at restaurants with my husband twice a week. Have a very specific rule. And then once you've gone through the curve, and remember there might be more than one curve to go through, usually 80% of it has to do with one signal and then there are a couple of minor signals. But once you've been through it, don't entertain going backwards. Don't go back and visit your friends if you broke out of prison because you're just going to reset the curve to zero. You might reset it even stronger. Like if Thag, Thag only found bananas once a week or so, then all of a sudden it seemed like they could be available at any time. His brain's going to go haywire and go craving. So when you understand more about the science of how cravings works, if you understand that feeling of just hand over the chocolate and nobody gets hurt, screw it, just do it, nothing else matters. If you understand that that's driven by organismic distress and that you need to look at self-regulating better, getting a little more sleep, getting a little more water, looking at your nutrition, maybe with a dietitian or nutritionist or one of the online calculators like Chronometer. If you understand all that, if you kind of minimize your decisions throughout the day, if you start with something simple, most people make the mistake of saying, either I'm going to be really, 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 really good, or else I'm going to go to town. I'm just going to eat everything under the sun. Don't do that. What you've done is you've developed an identity as a yo-yo dieter. That kind of sucks. It's a miserable place to be. Instead, go to kindergarten before you go to college and say, what is one simple rule that I could follow that I could not would do, which would make a big difference, but it's not too onerous. It's not too hard. Like, like I remember this trucker who had to eat at a fast food place three times a day. And he says, because he's on the road all the time, he says, well, I can't stop doing that, but I'll tell you what, I won't go back for seconds. And starting with that one simple rule, which he could and would do, he developed more of a success identity. See, if you observe yourself doing something day in and day out, a simple trick is like, just get to the gym and stand on the treadmill. You don't have to do anything else. Observe yourself doing that day in and day out. Your identity function starts to kick in. It's another energy-saving mechanism in the brain. It says, I must be the kind of person who goes to the gym. I must be a gym goer. And then you form this character trait. Character is nothing more than what you habitually do at the moment of temptation. You form this character trait that makes all those decisions for you. And before you know it, you're going to the gym all the time. And you're not like gritting your teeth trying to follow this rule. It's just who you are. It's an automatic movement already from you. 
Yeah, you're using automaticity in your in your favor rather than letting the pig use it against you. So I'm going to shut up for a minute because I just kept talking for a long time. <laughs> While you were talking, I was thinking that all these things don't really just apply to cravings. But if we were just going to talk about cravings in general, one thing that I've particularly liked is that it's not my fault that I have these cravings. It's my exposure to these types of foods that were designed by very smart people. And I've, I think I was read in one of the Reddit threads that these scientists actually even make the texture, create the texture in a way that would be so palatable to you that it would give you all these explosions in your brain with satisfaction aside from the taste that you get yeah. by eating all this genetically modified whatever kinds of food this is. Nutrition has been taken out and it's just revenue driven. It's like legitimate drugs <laughs> that are out there. That's the main point is for you to eat more and more of it. I'm starting to think that, and then one thing that you also said is that cravings are advantageous to you in the right environment. However, in the environment that we're in, where everything's, I mean, available right now, and the food that's available isn't really, is not healthy at all, then it works against us. One thing that I could think of right now as an example is like a woman. So let's say the wife, my wife. So every time of the month, she would have her the period and she would have these cravings. I, on my end, would, whenever I have this stressful meeting, I would have these cravings. So that's the triggers. And I now understand that there are these triggers. But now that I also understand that I could implement a hard and fast rule that if this happens, it doesn't necessarily mean that I have to grab my Maltesers, my bucket of Maltesers, or grab my Coke. Okay, and say that the only time that I have my Maltesers is during the weekends, or the only time that I can have my Maltesers is when I do my 10,000 steps. Then I can do something else to battle these cravings. And as I continue doing it, automaticity will come over and take place over it. And also, you have to ask yourself, what do I genuinely need when I have this stressful business meeting coming up? Maybe you need to do 20 jumping jacks before you get to the meeting, or maybe take a shower, or Maybe it's make yourself a nice green juice. Or just pause and count to three. Just pause and count to three. And maybe I could catch myself saying, oh, okay, I don't need to grab that Coke. I just have to focus on the meeting itself. Yes, exactly. The answer sounds so simple, but putting it into action takes a lot of work. What are your suggestions for this, Dr. Glenn? Well, you can understand that thought in and of itself, even though it's true to be a pig squeal because we've done surveys among our readers and we found that on average, it takes people 24 to 48 hours to recover from overeating. And the results of overeating are lower productivity in business, lower presence of mind in relationships, less of an ability to be present with your kids, less effective problem solving, depression, less life satisfaction, and so your pig says that overeating is easier, but is it really? It's a hard path to keep overeating, to drag an extra 20, 50, 100 pounds with you. It's a hard path to live with high blood pressure or you know, diet reversible diabetes or heart attacks or strokes. It's um, the rewards of going through a little bit more pain and a little bit more work 
in order to change your habits. And that's all it is, is a habit. It's a lifetime of vitality and presence and productivity that, you know, you're trading off a little bit of discomfort for, and you can learn how to make yourself more comfortable. You can learn how to make it easier as you go along the way. So the pig says there has to be an easy way. There has to be something that feels just like rolling a rock downhill or something like that. What if sometimes life presents two hard choices and one hard choice after a short period of pain leads to a lifetime of pleasure and the other hard choice after a very short period of pleasure leads to a lifetime of pain? What's the real choice there? That's a nice way of putting it. Then you start to think about making the right choices. I don't know why I'm saying it again, but it's so simple. Counting to three, it's like catching yourself, being aware right away of the situation that you're in, catching yourself and saying, okay, I'm not grabbing that. I'm making the right choices. So for a bit of displeasure, for a moment of displeasure, I'm making the right choices and I could live a longer life. I mean, with better health, with more vigor. Once you do that, once you've built your pause muscle for a couple of weeks by counting to three before you eat, you can start to add other things into that pause. So for example, if you find that the thing that typically throws you and convinces you to break your rule is that I've got a really stressful meeting coming up. I can't get by without a little chocolate or without a little pizza or whatever it is. And you've decided that the refutation for that is stressful meetings are easier when my body is free and clear of poison. I'm just saying, suppose that's the refutation for you. Then you could create a mantra. Stressful meetings are easier when my body's free and clear. Stressful meetings are easier when my body's free and clear. And you could say that before you eat. And here's a secret about saying something before you eat. Because your brain is a calorie acquisition machine, the thoughts that you have before you eat are going to get reinforced. Normally what happens is the pig says, this is too stressful, we need some chocolate. Then you have chocolate, and then you're more likely to think, this is too stressful, we need some chocolate. But if every time before you eat, you say, meetings are less stressful when my body's free and clear, then the moment you experience the stress and you even consider eating anything, you're going to automatically think, meetings are less stressful when my body's free and clear. You can proactively take charge of what thoughts get reinforced, and you can push those justifications out of your head. By the way, we've done this kind of thing. We've implemented our methods with more than 2,000 paying clients. Our stats are in the first month, we get a 90% reduction, 89.4 in overeating episodes yeah, among the people that engage and use the tools. This stuff works. This really makes a difference. So there's a part of me saying with cravings, let's say late at night, I'm working right now, I'm working at 11 p.m. And whenever I have those cravings, I know that I would get that momentary high to increase my productivity. So it's like reaching out for uh, a cup of coffee that's overdosed with sugar. I don't know if you have those in the States, but this we call those instant coffees. Or jolt cola or something like that. Or something like that. So it's like our version of Red Bull, but in the form of coffee. My brain's been conditioned for the longest time, for the most number of years, right? That if I grab myself at that instant coffee, I would get that instant rush. I would become more productive. Do you think it's still going to be effective if I do the pause and then later on reinforce it with a mantra and then say that instead of just grabbing my hot 
super sweet coffee, I could just grab my water bottle and just get to grab a drink. You're going to need to do two things. I would measure my productivity, not over the first month that I did that, but over the second month. Because in the first month, you're going to have extinction bursts. It's going to be kind of painful. Your productivity might not be as good. But over the second month, I would measure my productivity as compared to what it is these last couple of years having the coffee and the sugar. The other thing to know, though, is that the cells in your pancreas are not an indefinite source of abuse. Eventually, they wear out. And so your ability to recover from having a jolt of coffee with all that sugar, it's going to take you longer and longer to recover and sap your productivity more and more. So you're focusing on the short-term feelings and the short-term bump in productivity, but what is the actual impact on your productivity over the course of a month? And what are you setting up for yourself down the road? Like how much longer can you burn the cells in your pancreas with all that sugar and adrenaline before you actually see a very severe decrease in productivity because of the recovery period getting longer and longer? You know, I remember the old days when I could have six Pop-Tarts in the morning and go about my day. And I'll believe me, my mother used to leave me a big box of chocolate fudge Pop-Tarts and I would have six every single morning. And I would just go out the door, ride my bike, go to school. I would trade my lunch for chocolate milk with this guy named Philip Harlan. So I just drank, I found another kid I could trade half a sandwich for. So I, I would drink three chocolate milks for lunch. And I thought it was great. I thought I really found the answer to life. I didn't know I was burning things out. And now if I did something like that, I would be useless the next day. You got to ask yourself, what are you really giving up? And also, it's a different way of life. If you made a rule that said, I will only have one of those coffee cups per week, when you listen to the pig to tell you to break the rule, it's like you're letting be the, your pig be your master as opposed to being your slave. In less gentlemanly terms, I don't want to be my pig's biatch. I want it to be mine. It sounds harsh, really works because at the moment of impulse, you wake up and you say, I don't want to be my pig's bitch. Am I allowed to say that on this podcast? I'm sorry. Yes, you are. This is explicit. <laughs> okay. I don't want to be my pig's bitch. I don't want to. Because it's a different way of life to know that you're in charge, that you're the master of your impulses, the master of your own fate. Seneca said, a man who is a slave to his body is surely not free. I think that that's very true. And the freedom that the discipline of following my food rules gives me outweighs the short-term pleasure the food hits could give me by far. Jim Rohn said a life of discipline is better than a life of regret. I think that's what he was talking about. As learned so much, what's really surprising is coming from someone who's been in an industry serving Fortune 500 companies and then in the world of direct response marketing. But it's just like, I don't know of many people who have made the hard choices and are now living the life that they are happier. So, I mean, people in the direct response world, anything marketing, it's just always been revenue driven and mostly think that it's the revenues that's driving the happiness. But the thing that you said there was that during that seminar, what you heard is that whether you're making $50 million or making a million dollars in the snap, that one heart attack would just drop you dead. And what's funny is this podcast is called The Million Dollar Filipino Freelancer, right? So we've always been talking about money, but we haven't really focused on health. Making the hard choices for now, but reconditioning it and thinking of it as the right choices 
in order for you to live a longer, more fruitful life, that changes the game. And then knowing or in acknowledging that, yes, there's that inner bitch, that inner pig that we want it to be our bitch, is, gives us so much power that we're not the slaves around here, right? We're the masters, right? Right. And we're wired like that. Your neocortex is wired to put a pause on your lizard brain's activity. And before it engages in all this eat, mate, or kill, primal feast or famine survival stuff, it can say, wait a minute, what impact is that going to have on your loved ones, on your relationships, on your long-term goals, and your health and your fitness? We're wired to win. I think it's a great reminder for all of us that we're not the losers here. It's just that we've temporarily lost control. But now with what we've learned here is that we can regain that control back and we become the masters. Dr. Glenn, going back, I want to know more about your book. So the book is called Defeat Your Cravings. It's available on Amazon. Is it also available on Audible? I prefer that you got it from my website so I can give you a free copy of the book in Kindle Nook or PDF format. If you go to defeatyourcravings.com. So what's the new name of the website again? Defeatyourcravings.com and click on the big blue button. I recorded the Audible book last week, so the Audible format should be available in about two weeks, I think, once I get it through the Amazon approval process. That's free, and if you join the reader bonus list, you'll get a set of recorded sessions where you can watch me coach people through this. There's a lot of information. It sounds a little weird. Like, why does Neil have this doctor with a pig on inside of him? It sounds a little weird, but it's actually a very passionate life-giving process that takes people from feeling hopeless and confused and despairing about how to ever beat their cravings to feeling excited and hopeful and um, optimistic in just one session. So I want people to hear that. I recorded a bunch of sessions. And I also set up a set of food plan starter templates. So we're diet agnostic. We don't tell you what to eat, anything within reason. I can't teach you to eat nothing, succeed. I can't teach you to fast for a week. And I can't teach you to do that. But if it's a reasonable diet where you have reasonable nutrition, then I can help you do that. And so I set up a set of food plan starter templates for, there's one for a keto diet, there's one for a whole foods plant-based diet, there's one for point counters, calorie counters, whatever you're doing, you'll find a set of starter templates just to give you some simple rules that you might want to start with. And you'll, you'll want to start with one simple rule. Defeatyourcravings.com, click the big blue button. If you need help, we do have coaching programs, but you'll be led to all that after you start with the free stuff. We're so excited to read more about the book finally defeat our cravings, never look back again. And if we need more professional help and more custom help, then we'll definitely reach out. Dr. Glenn, it's been a pleasure. Now we understand that it's not just about the money, making us million-dollar Filipino freelancers. It's also about the health because what's the point of having all this money if we don't have the health to enjoy it? And paradoxically, you'll make more money if you take care of your health. Agree you're more productive. And I made more money when I was in marketing than doing what I'm, I do now, but I, I make enough. I'm happy I'm, I make enough. And if you're in a money-making field, you'll make more. You should make more. You take care of your well-being. I would say to add to that, it's the kind of money that you make when you're healthier versus the kind of money that you make when you aren't that healthy. So, I mean, that alone changes the game. So no matter if there's more money when you weren't healthy, but the money that you make now when you're healthier, that changes the game altogether. You enjoy it more. You enjoy it more. Dr. Glenn, so thank you so much again. And we will stalk you on Facebook. We're so happy to see you back on Facebook and learn more about your book. Dr. Glenn, 
Maraming salamat and thank you, Bashers, for listening. Thank you, Bashers. O di ba may sponsor na kami? Libre ka namin ng yummy chapche mo kapag umorder ka sa Taste of Joy. Taste of Joy. Masarap ang pansit dito, masarap pagkain nila. Basta ang worth ng order mo ay 1,000 pesos and up. Net, ito ha, hindi kasama yung mga dinidiscount mong senior citizen na patikapitbahay nyo na senior citizen, sila sama mo ha. Net, 1,000 pesos and up. Meron kang libreng chapche. Sagot na namin ang chapche mo. All you have to do is go to the Instagram account nila, tasteofjoy.ph para umorder. Doon ka lang o-order and basta umabot ng 1,000 pesos ang order mo. Net, ha? Net. Lilibre ka namin ng yummy-yummy chapche. Mapapa. Mm, arasa. Ah, sasarap. Let's go! Yon, Congratulations! You have survived another episode of the Million Dollar Filipino Freelancer Podcast. If you want more Sabunutan ng Feeling Session, go download all the other episodes. If talagang hungry ka for more of our content, go to our Facebook group. It's linked in the description below. You can also tag us on Facebook and Instagram kung meron kang topics you would like us to discuss. If gusto mo kami shoutout, okay din kami. Adios! <laughs>